Father, again, as we come to your word, we just thank you for the light that you have shown us through these words in this Bible and just how important it is to our walk with Jesus Christ. I, I just ask today as we look at this text where, where uh, Abraham has this experience with you where he's overcome by darkness, this horror of darkness. And Lord, there's such a lesson to learn because I know in all of our lives there are times when, when things seem to be so dark, Lord. Uh, there just seems to be no light, and uh, we we seem to be falling deeper and deeper into darkness. And, Lord, as we look at this text today, we'll see why maybe that happens even to believers at times, and why it happened to Abraham is probably the same reason that it happens to us. And so, Lord, there's just a good lesson to learn, because if we're not in darkness now, Lord, there, there's going to be times when Things are going to seem really, really dark in our souls, really, really dark in our lives. And so show us how uh, the importance of those times and what we can learn from those times through this great passage in Genesis 15. And we just ask that you bless this study today by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask that in Christ's name. Amen. If you've looked at your bulletins, you saw that the title of the message today is How Great is the Darkness Indeed? And that title comes from uh, Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus warned us all that if, and I'm quoting here, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness indeed. How great is that darkness if the light that is in us is darkness? It's great. That darkness is horrifying. Uh, it's the darkness of hell. It's the darkness of the, that comes with the absence of God because God is light. Uh, and in him is no darkness at all. And so when we're experiencing darkness, it's due to the absence of God. In today's lesson, Abram is going to taste that great darkness, the darkness of hell. But God had purposes in letting Abraham being overcome by darkness. And and we're going to try to figure out what those purposes were today as as we uh, look at this text. Because there's going to be times when you and I are going to experience dark times too. So so this is an important text. And and, uh, let's go back to where we left off last week. Uh, the Lord had renewed his promises to Abraham, and Abraham was on cloud nine. I mean, he was excited. He was elated. Things were going really, really good. The Lord had told him that uh, uh, you're going to have a son, uh, and that uh, that meant that all those other promises that Abraham was given by God were going to come to fruition, that uh, his name was going to be made great, that a great nation was going to come from his loins, and that in his seed... All the nations of the earth were going to be blessed and uh, that his descendants were going to be innumerable. So Abraham was all excited. And and, uh, uh, remember what happened in verse number 6. We see this defining moment in in Abraham's life when he actually, I believe, gets saved. In verse number 6 of chapter 15 it says, And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it, the Lord accounted it to him, for righteousness we're talking about perfect righteousness the righteousness of god the 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 righteousness that everyone 
who gets to heaven will have that righteousness because only those who have the righteousness of God are fit from heaven. And so Abraham at that moment received that righteousness as a gift from God. And then in verse number 7 it says, Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of Chaldeans, out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to inherit it. So the Lord reminds Abraham of three very important things in in verse number 7. Just look there at the verse. First of all, he reminds him that the Lord is the Lord. He says that, look at the first part of this verse in in verse number 7. He says, I am the Lord. What's the name Jehovah mean? That's what the Lord is. Yahweh, what does it mean? I am who I am. And so the Lord says to Abraham, I am, I am who I am. I've always been, I always will be the great I am Jehovah. And I'm the one who called you out of the Ur of Chaldea. I'm the Lord of Lords called you, the King of Kings called you, the one who's sovereign over the earth, the one who owns the earth. Uh, And so it's mine to give away, it's mine to take away. So God, what we see here, and what Abraham is learning here, is that God never promises more uh, than he is able to deliver. And he's able to deliver, deliver anything he wants to deliver because all things are possible with God. The only thing that's not possible with God is that God would lie. And so if God makes a promise, he cannot lie, and so he's going to fulfill that promise. All right, then the second important thing that he reminds Abraham of right here. He reminds him that he brought him out of the Ur, out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, I think it's the Lord's referring to something more here than just a location, the name of a location. The, the word Ur means flame or fire. And so what the Lord is saying here is, I'm the one who brought you out of the fire. I mean, here you were living with the pagans, your parents were pagan, uh, you were pagan. Uh, you were on the way to hell, the fires of hell, and I plucked you out of that fire by my grace. And then he reminds him of the third thing here. He says, to give you a purpose, to give you this land to inherit it, this land that I own, that the Canaanites are living in now, I'm going to give it to you. And so he promises him that he's going to give him this land that he's shown him and, and he one day, he's going to inherit it. All right, and then look at verse number 8. And he said, here's what Abraham says to the Lord. Now, here's the Lord. He's made him all of these promises. He's, he's reminded him of these great things that he's done for him. And now he, listen to Abraham's response, response in verse number 8. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Now, that's almost laughable, isn't it? Because I'm reading in verse number 6 that he believed in the Lord. And really, literally, he believed the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And here he is already uh, asking for a sign. He says, Lord, I believe you, but give me a sign. Who does that remind you of? You remember when Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he came back down and his disciples were down there, nine of them. And they're trying to cast out this demon out of this demon-possessed boy. And he's still thriving on the floor. And, I mean, 
uh, he's rolling around on the floor and, and, uh, his, and, and, he's, and he's having these convulsions and, and his father's in, you know, begging these disciples to deliver his son and they can't deliver him and Jesus comes up and he asks Jesus, hey, your disciples aren't, aren't doing this. I thought, you know, they're, they're your disciples. I thought they could cast out this demon and they haven't done a thing. And, and then the Lord said to him something. He said, he said, if you can believe, he says, all things are possible to him who believes. And I love the father's response because it's so honest. Listen to what he says. Immediately the father of the child cried and said with tears, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. You ever feel like that? Lord, I believe every word of this Bible, but Lord, help my unbelief. Because there, we, we have our doubts. We believe. We set it in stone. I believe you, Lord. I believe everything you say in your word. But then when we're pressed into a situation that tests that faith, we begin to doubt. Now, Abraham's not even being pressed at this point, and he's already doubting. And why is he doubting? I mean, he's, he's probably about 80, 85 years old at this point. And, and God's telling him he's going to have a son, Lord, and he's going to inherit this land, and all these promises are going to come true. Lord, I believe that. But that's impossible. So help my unbelief. And so uh, the Lord's going to give him a sign, and, but uh, just like he will give us a sign sometimes. Uh, but even when Abraham gets this sign, and we'll see the sign here in a minute, his faith is still going to falter. And that's a lesson we can learn from this. I mean, his faith's going to falter in the very next chapter. We're going to see uh, he's going to, time's going to pass and, and he's not going to have a son. He's going to begin to doubt again. And, and him and Sarah are going to connive this plan to have a, a child through, through his handmaid, Hagar. And he's going to have a child named Ishmael. And so it doesn't take long, even though he gets this great sign, for him to doubt again. And there's a lesson in that. You know, signs are only a temporary fix for your doubt. I believe God still gives signs to his children when you ask for a sign. But you still, more than likely, if you're asking for a sign, you're asking God to help you believe something that's impossible, that's going to take time for God to, to, a promise that's going to take time for God to fulfill. And so you can ask for a sign, but it's still going to, you're not going to shorten the length of time of the, uh, of the trial or, or the, the length of time before that promise is fulfilled. And so, so you're still going to doubt. You know, you're, you're gonna, your faith is going to falter at some point. But here's the good news. If your faith is in the right object, then your faith, even though it's the size of a mustard seed, can move mountains. So it's not so much about your faith, how much faith you have, but who you have your faith in. So if you're facing the Lord, you're in good shape. So it's okay to ask for a sign. But don't be surprised if you get the sign. And sometimes God won't give you a sign. I think he will if you keep asking. And, but, but you'll get the sign, and then you'll still be in the same fix you were in, and the doubts are going to come again. But if you hang on to the Lord like a bulldog, and you don't let go, one day you're going to see those promises fulfilled. All right, so the Lord knows... Abraham's faith is weak and at this point, and, and uh, so he's going to give him a sign, but with that sign, he's going to give him a great lesson too. So let's look at the, the sign and the lesson, lesson uh, beginning in verse number 9. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. 
Then he brought all these things to him, and he cut them in two. And I think the Lord gives him the, the instructions, and the Lord tells him to, to, to kill these animals and cut these animals into two. And he placed each piece opposite the other. Now, the birds were small, so he didn't cut them in two, but he placed one bird on one side and one bird on the other side. So here's the instructions that the Lord gives Abraham. First of all, he tells him, bring me one of each of the acceptable uh, uh, animals for sacrifice. Now, that tells us something here, that this sign is going to involve what? It's going to involve sacrifice. It's the most important sign God can give us, and that's a sign related to sacrifice. Now, then he tells him that these animals have to be three years old. Why three years old? Because that's an ideal age for an animal. They're fully grown. They're not too, uh, too old at that point. They're not too young. Uh, next week, they'll run the Kentucky Derby, and what age are the horses that they run? They run them in their prime at three years old. And so he, what God is saying, I want you to bring me your very best. I don't want you to bring me your old animals or your, your uh, newborn animals. I want you to bring me your three-year-old animals that aren't too young or not too old. And then he says to cut them into pieces, into two pieces, except for the birds. Now, if you read most commentaries on this, what they will say is what Abraham was doing was what was the custom of that day. Now, we don't know what was the custom of that day. They go way back to almost uh, a few hundred years past the flood. And so so, uh, uh, we don't really know what the custom of that day was. And so we have that term to cut a covenant. I think maybe that term to cut a covenant comes from this passage, not from a custom that preceded uh, the events that we're reading about right here. Uh, I actually believe that God originated this idea of cutting a covenant and that this is God's idea. And you see it again mentioned in Jeremiah uh, chapter 34 in the context of the fact that God has said uh, you've cut the animals in two and you've walked through the animals, but you walk through the animals in a wicked way. And so... Uh, it's, it has to do with sacrifice and, and, and that the covenant has everything to do with sacrifice. And so I believe that this is God's original idea. Now, you can believe what you want, but I don't go along with the idea that, that God used some custom of man uh, to, to give Abraham a sign. I don't think he did that. I think he originated uh, what they do right here. Now, so God is going to cut this covenant with Abraham here, but we know that it's an unconditional covenant. Now, what's an unconditional covenant? An unconditional covenant is, is, is a covenant that doesn't depend upon us. It depends upon God, and at least in the context of an unconditional covenant of God. He does all the work. He's the one who fulfills the promises. He's the one who fulfills the, the uh, promises in the covenant. Uh, now, Ab- all Abraham did, had to do was bring the animals that God told him to bring to the sacrifice. He had to cut the animals in two, and then he had to set the animals on opposite sides of each other, and one bird on one side and one bird on the other side. All right, now, why did he have to kill the animals? Well, he had to kill the animals because of his sin, because God's showing him something here very early on. Even though Abraham has believed and it's accounted to him to righteousness, God is going to teach him about the cross, and it's going to be a slow process. But he's asked for a sign, and God's going to give him a sign. And in this sign, he's going to give him this spiritual lesson about sacrifice. 
And Abraham, these were animals that Abraham owned. They were some of the best animals that he owned. And and so uh, he has to kill these animals to atone for his sin or to cover his sin because the life is in the blood. And so God makes him kill these animals and uh, then watch what happens Not next in verse number 11. And when the vulture, and we're getting some spiritual lessons here. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, why in the world would God put that? What do we care about that? You care a lot about that. Because the vultures are unclean birds. And unclean birds in the scriptures always represent Satan and his demons. And so what Abraham is doing here, literally, we have to do spiritually. Whenever somebody's about to be redeemed, the devil's going to do everything he can to mess that up. He's done everything he can since the beginning of time to mess up God's redemptive plan. When he and his demons hung, saw are, are put into process, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, they thought they had totally killed off God's redemptive plan because redemption is in Jesus Christ. And so they had killed Jesus Christ, and they thought they had killed God's redemptive plan. What did they do? They fulfilled God's redemptive plan by having or putting in the hearts of the Jews and the Romans to kill Jesus Christ. Uh, so... Uh, They're always going to be there whenever God is trying to redeem somebody. Whenever redemption is being discussed. Uh, So even now, we have to do the same thing. Whenever somebody's getting close to being saved, what has to happen? You've got to chase away those vultures because they're going to do everything they can to keep that person from getting saved. Jesus told a parable about the sower uh, over in Matthew chapter 13. And remember one of the, one of the, uh, one of the se- uh, groups of seeds that the sower sowed, he sowed uh, on the wayside. And, and the, the birds of the air came and snatched up the seeds. And the disciples asked Jesus, what does that mean? And Jesus said, the birds of the air are like the devil and his demons. And they come when the seed hasn't taken root and they snatch up that seed and take it away. How does the devil do that? He does that by, with demonic thoughts, by putting doubts in people's minds. I, I wrote down some of the things that you'll hear if you're about to get saved. I mean, do you really believe that you can be saved by somebody hanging on a cross? I mean, do you really think you want to be a Christian? Uh, do you realize what you're going to have to give up? I mean, you'll never have fun ever again if you're a Christian. I mean, God will stick his nose in all your business. Amen. Isn't that great that he does that? But the devil says, you don't want that. I mean, you want to live your own life. You don't need God. Do you really believe that by faith alone you can be made fit for heaven? I mean, do you really believe that? That's, that gospel story is a silly story. I mean, do you really think as good as you are that God would ever send you to hell? You don't need the gospel. Uh, God is love. He won't send anybody to hell. All roads lead to heaven. Those are the kind of thoughts that the devil comes at people when they're about to get saved. 
uh, when they're about to be redeemed and, and when God is wooing somebody. And so what a person has to do and what we all had to do when we, before we were saved, you've got to chase those vultures away. You've got to chase those demons away. You've got to, how do you do that? By capturing every thought captive to Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? We do that in the Word. And it takes faith. You've got to believe. Now, where do we get that faith? That faith is, is a gift of God and not of works, lest any man should, should boast. So God's going to give us the faith, but we still have a choice. We can believe the devil or we can believe God. And that process continues on after we're saved. I mean, we are all the time being bombarded with demonic thoughts, and we have a choice. We can believe God, or we can, or we can and chase those vultures away, or we can sit there and listen to that stuff and just let them flutter around our heads and fill us full of all sorts of doubt, and, and uh, we'll become dis- distressed and depressed really quick. That's a choice we have to make, and, and we do that by taking every thought that comes in our mind Captive to Jesus Christ, we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. What's that mean? We put that thought and we put it in the light of the word and then we either cast it out or we receive that thought. If it's from God, we receive it. If it's from the devil or from our flesh, we cast it out. All right, now in verse number 12, he says, Now when the sun was going down, and here we get into the meat of the text, the heart of the text. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And behold, horror and great darkness. Now, maybe a better translation here, a more accurate translation is, the horror of a great darkness fell upon Abraham. Uh, why? Well, first of all, how? I mean, how did, did God allow or uh, cause this great darkness to fall upon Abraham. Let me tell you how God does that. He just withdraws his spirit. God is light. And without God, you're in total darkness. And in this particular case, I believe that God totally withdrew himself from Abraham. And he was in complete darkness. The darkness of the soul. The same darkness that is in hell. That darkness that... uh, is caused by the total absence of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a really dark place. And I'm not talking about a dark room, because in a dark room there's some light. And you can, you, you know, your eyes will adjust to that lack of light, and you'll eventually be able to see some things again. But if you've ever been in a place that's so dark that you can't even see your hand in front of you after being in there for minutes, you know what I'm talking about. That is utter darkness. I remember one time when we were in Italy, and, and I think I've shared this with you before, and we went into these caverns where they, the Germans had dug out during the war to, to, uh, to, hide, to put their ammunition and protect it from the Allies and, and to put their cannons. And deep down in those caverns, I mean, there was no light. And we got lost one time in those caverns. And I remember I could not, it was so scary, it was horrifying. Because I could not see my hand in front of me. I could put it this close. I could not see. We were holding on. Me and my brothers were holding on to each other. We could feel it in the walls because we couldn't see anything. Now, put that on a spiritual level where things are so dark that you can't see anything. 
You can't see truth no matter how hard you try. You can't save yourself no matter how hard you try. You can't see goodness no matter how hard you try. There's nothing you can see but darkness. The darkness of the soul. And that's how dark it was for Abraham. Uh, he, He experienced this horror of a great darkness. And why did God do that or allow that? I mean, God just removed himself. That's all he had to do. But why? Why did he do that? Well, he's going to teach Abraham two things here. He's going to teach him, first of all, uh, on a physical plane. He's going to teach him how dark of a time the Israelites are going to go through when they are in bondage down in Egypt, those 430 years, just how dark those years are going to be for them. That's one of Those descendants are in his loins as, as this event is taking place. And so God's saying, look, Things are good. You're elated about all of these promises. But it's going to take time. And there's going to come a really dark period in the life of the nation of Israel. It's going to last 400 years. But he also wants to teach him something else. He wants to teach us something else. Just how dark the darkness is in our souls when we don't have God. He's going to teach him that lesson too, and we'll see that in a minute. But first of all, let's look at the first lesson. He's going to show how dark things are going to be for the nation of Israel. Let's read beginning in verse number 13. It says, Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants, your, the Israelites, will be strangers in a land, we're talking about Egypt, that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will, aff- the, they will serve the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will afflict them for 400 years. And also... A, the nation whom they serve, I will judge afterwards. When those 400 years are up, how did he judge them? You remember those 10 plagues that he sent upon the Egyptians, especially that last plague where they lost their firstborn sons. Uh, afterwards, hey, you're going to come out, your descendants are going to come out with great possessions. And that's exactly what happened, didn't it? Because uh, the Egyptians were so glad to get rid of the Israelites when they finally made the exodus that they gave them all their gold and silver and their, all their gold and silver jewelry. Uh, so that they went out rich. All right. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. Hey, this isn't going to happen in your age. This is going to happen sometimes in the future. And you shall be buried, I love this, at a good old age. What's a good old age? What's he mean by good old age? Well, he's not talking so much about length of years because when David died, he was 70 years old, and it's said of David that he died at a ripe old age, at a good old age. Abraham lived to be 175. I mean, David would say, hey, man, I got, I got ripped off. You lived 100 years longer than me. I don't think David said that after he went to be with the Lord, but uh, he said, boy, Abraham got the bad deal. He stayed here 175 years. But anyway, it's not about the length of time. It's about aging gracefully. That's what it's about. Uh, Where a person has probably, you know, relatively good health. Uh, If you age with good health, that's a good thing. You kind of age and you still got a spring in your step as you you, uh, hit your senior years. I mean, you think Abraham had a spring in his step? I mean, he was 100 years old when he had Isaac. So he certainly had a spring in his step. Uh, Moses, it said of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 7, he was 120 when he died, 
His eyes, yet his eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. I mean, he was still a young man. Uh, and I think the most important thing that defines a good old age is that you're still useful to God in the latter years of your life. The, the psalmist describes a person who lives a good old age and is useful to God to the end of his life over in Psalm 92. Flip with me over there for a minute. Psalm 92. One of my favorite psalms. I, I never even ever looked at it till I hit 65, but you, 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 now I love it. Psalm 92. It says, The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in, in Lebanon. Those who are... Uh, psalm 92, verse 12. I'm sorry. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. Now watch this. Here's what I want you to see. Verse number 14. They shall bear fruit in old age. Uh, They shall be fresh. That's literally full of oil. Now in, in the Bible, what's oil always symbolic of? The Holy Spirit. So they are full of the Holy Spirit. You know, you ever meet old people? who aren't full of the Holy Spirit, they're hard to be around. I mean, when I'm not full of the Holy Spirit, you don't want to be around. You say, that cranky old man. But when I'm full of the Spirit, hey, I'm young. I'm really young. So they shall be fresh and flourishing, literally green. They shall be green. What's green represent in the Bible? Life. They shall be full of life. You know, when I... First went to seminary, I was 40 years old. I got saved when I was 40. Actually, I was 43 when I went to seminary. And I was telling a friend of mine up in Reno who had a ministry up in Reno. I said, you know, I can't believe I'm 40 years old and going to seminary. He said, George, you're going to live forever. And now I look back on that. You know, I mean, I might look old to you guys. But, but I'm, you know, I still feel like a kid. I mean, I still feel green. I still feel full of life. And that's it, a gift from God. Uh, hopefully I'll die at a good old age. Uh, not soon, but hopefully when it happens, it'll be at a good old age. And verse number 15, here's their purpose. This is, this is why God keeps you around if you're a born-again believer. To declare that the Lord is upright, that he is our rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. And you can add to that that there is no righteousness without him. See, that's, that's our purpose. That's what God keeps us around for, to do that. And, and so uh, God uh, promised Abram, you're going to live to be a good old age. You're going to have a purpose right up until the time you die. You're going to be full of the Spirit, and you're going to be full of life. I remember when I pastored in New Orleans, there was a lady there named Frida Boss, an elderly lady. And, and uh, I remember... I remember going to see her. I mean, I mean, I just loved having her in the church. And I hated when they when she finally had to go to a home. She had to bet you, and she finally had to go to a home, and and uh, we didn't get to see her much. But we would go visit her, and she couldn't remember my name. She would say, "Hey, Pastor Ed, how you doing?" You know, or and she'd call Brenda Betty, and 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 but man, she could quote the Psalms and she could praise God. And this lady, she was so full of life, even with dementia. I mean, she was so full of life, she just emanated the joy and peace of God. See, that's what Abraham's being promised here 
uh, you're going to die at a good old age. And, and, hey, I hope that happens for all of you, too. All right, then verse number 16. Back, let's go back to Genesis chapter 15. In verse number 16. But in the fourth generation, that 400 years, that, that, that's a long, long time, isn't it? So he's telling Abraham, it's, it's all going to take a long, long time. You know, you better learn that when you're dealing with God. The promises of God take a long, long time to be fulfilled. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Did you catch that? The, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So one of the main reasons that this dark age is going to last for 400 years is that the cup of iniquity for the Amorites is not yet full. God's going to give them 400 years to fix things. He knows they're not going to fix things, but he's going to give them 400 years to fix things. And maybe a few of them did get saved along the way. Why so long well we get that answer to that question in second peter chapter 3 verse 9 you don't have to go there let me read it to you the lord is not slack concerning his promise he's going to judge sin as some as some count slackness but is long suffering towards us not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance god is long suffering even with a people as savage and pagan as the Amorites. They were about as savage and pagan as you can get. I was listening to a lady, a prophecy lady on radio yesterday. I cut it off. I always end up cutting it off. I don't know why I even started. But, but she made the comment that, man, you, the Lord's got to be coming soon. The Lord's got to judge America right now because we're just so evil. You know, that's basically... I'm, Totally paraphrasing what she said, but we've gotten so evil that judgment's got to be here right now. It just has to come. She's forgetting something. The Lord is long-suffering, and he wishes that none should perish, that all should come to eternal life. And God's not going to judge any nation until he's either removed his people out of there, until he knows that anybody who has a chance of getting saved has had that chance. He's going to give them that chance. And there's still some good people in America, and I believe there's still a lot of people in America who are going to get saved. So whenever you catch me saying, hey, well, the Lord's got to come tomorrow, you correct me because the Lord doesn't have to come tomorrow. The Lord waited, waited 400 years for the Amorites, and he'll wait, might wait another 400 years on America to get right with him. So, so we're not God, and we can't play God. If we want to look at how God works, though, He's long-suffering, and, and he takes his time before he judges a people, a total people like he did the Amorites. So, so maybe there is some hope for revival and, and uh, good things to happen again in America, and we serve a great God, so maybe that will happen. Pray for that. But now back to Abram. Abram's told about his descendants, but God wants to show him something else here. He wants to show him about the darkness in his own soul. You know, God wants to show that to you, too. I mean, I think before anybody gets saved, 
they have to see just how dark the darkness is in their own soul. But there are times even after you're saved, you got to see just how dark the darkness is in your own soul. And that's what God is going to show him, just how dark things are without me. And uh, so Abraham, when he falls into this deep sleep and this horror of this great darkness come up, comes upon him, I believe he's actually experiencing the darkness of hell. And what is hell? Is total separation from God. It is the total absence from God. And it's reserved for those people who die in their sin. Now, Abraham's just getting a taste of it. But he's getting a taste of it for a reason. Uh, So God could show him his hope. Because Abraham wasn't a man without hope. He had great hope. And God's going to show him his hope in two great symbols now as we pick up in verse number 17. Go with me to verse number 17. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark... And behold, there appeared a smoking oven. Now, what in the world is that? I have no doubt that oven was brass, because brass represents judgment. Uh, we're not told that, but, but I think we'll see what it means later on. And I think it probably was like the brazen altar that sat in the outer court of the temple, because that was a smoking oven where the sacrifices were burned on the outer court of the temple. And then there was a burning torch. I'll just bet you that was a menorah. Bet you it was a menorah. And, and, and I'm reminded of the time in Revelation chapter 1, remember when Jesus passed through the churches holding the lampstand, the torch, the burning torch, and he went through the churches and he was judging the churches. So, so we get a real similar picture right here is what I believe. So what the Lord, I believe, is saying to Abraham and to all of us is that there's two things that are needed if we're going to escape the darkness. Two things that have to, we have to have if we're going to escape the darkness. And first of all, there has to be a smoking oven. There has to be an altar of sacrifice. See, he had placed those animals, cut those animals, killed those animals, cut those animals in two, drained their blood, and set them on each opposite sides of each other. And so we knew that this had something to do with sacrifice. And then comes this uh, smoking oven, uh, and, and, and it's an altar of sacrifice. And uh, uh, you've got these animals sacrificed on each side at, that pointed to another sacrifice that Abraham doesn't know about yet. He's going to learn about it later on in Genesis chapter 22. And, and maybe in some of those encounters he had with the Lord, he'll learn more about it even more later on. But, but, but we don't know about that. But anyway, what is all of this pointing to? It's pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who died in the outer court outside the temple. He died outside the gates for our sin. And so that's the first uh, symbol that he sees. The second symbol that he sees is the burning torch. And again, I think it's a menorah. And what does that menorah represent? It represents the light of God. And what does the light of God do? It overcomes darkness. Now, how does it overcome darkness? It sheds light on the smoking oven. Look, Abraham couldn't have seen the smoking oven without the menorah. So he had to have both. You can't have one without the other. 
You got either you got to have the light and you got to have the oven. You can't have the oven without the light or the light without the oven or you, you can never be saved. And that and that's what he's showing him right here. So so that light is the light that you have to have in order to see the smoking oven, in order to look upon the brazen altar, in order to look upon the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's why the Bible says that no one could come. Jesus said it, rather, in, in, in the Bible, uh, in John chapter 6. No man can come to me unless the Father draws him. Now, how does the Father draw him? He draws him by his light. So the only way to overcome darkness is to come to that light. And the only way to come to that light is if the Father draws you to that light. Now, the Father's going to draw, he, he draws everybody to some degree to the light. We live in a world with some light. There is the light of God in this world. Now, God removes all his light from this world. Uh, even if you had the sunlight, you still would be in utter darkness. But we have some light, and the Father is still wishes that none should perish, and he's still drawing men and women to him today. But you've got to come to the light. And most people don't come to the light. And they don't come to the light because, as Jesus said in John chapter 3, and this is their condemnation, that the light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. So here's Abram, and he's felt this Total darkness. How dark is that darkness indeed? It's very dark. He feels this total absence of God. Here's this man who just recently was speaking with God. God was speaking with him. And, 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 and now that God is totally absent, he feels this wretchedness within his soul, which we all should feel when we don't have Jesus Christ. Whenever God removes his spirit in any form or fashion, we should feel that wretchedness in our soul. There are times in my life I feel pretty doggone wretched. I mean, God removes that light and I'm left with me. And that's a pretty bad thing when God removes that light and I'm left all by myself. But he sees this flaming torch this menorah, this light of God. And imagine, here you are one minute and you're totally in darkness and then you see this torch. You see this beam of light. And, and uh, uh, he's tasted hell and now he sees the light of heaven in the incarnate Jesus Christ. I have no doubt about that. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. His light is life. And here was Abram experiencing total darkness and experiencing the feeling of his wretchedness and feeling the experience of death, experiencing the, the feeling of hell. And then all of a sudden, the light of the world comes on the scene holding this menorah. And all of a sudden, the light of life is in his soul. You think he didn't get elated at that point? Now, Now he's given this sign. He knows. He knows without a shadow of a doubt. And this is where every one of us need to come. That this is an unconditional covenant. That he can do nothing to take himself out of the darkness of the human soul. He can do nothing. 
Only God can fulfill these promises. Only God can use him to bring forth a seed who will, who will bless the nation. Only, this is, all of these are the unconditional promises of God through grace uh, by faith. And that faith is not of works. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And it's faith in God's sacrifice. There was that sacrifice that he saw that pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And there was God's light, which was the light of life. And he realized that all of that was the work of God and he could never do anything to save himself. And God reiterates now, he goes back as we finish up, and he reiterates the land covenant, this unconditional land covenant. This is important. They're tied together. The land's not important to you and I. But God's word is important to you and I. I mean, if God's not faithful to the Israelites, then what makes you think he's going to be faithful to you? So I'm glad that these are unconditional covenants. And and we look at the last part of this unconditional covenant in, in my Bible's coming apart here, so I'm having trouble. In the last part of... Uh, Chapter 15, look down at verse number 18. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. Now, that is a lot of territory right there. The Israelites right now only occupy maybe less than half of that territory, about a third of that territory. So all the way to the Euphrates River is a long ways. And and you'll... He says, to your descendants, I've given the land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. The Kenites, the Kenesites, the Cadmonites, the Easter Bunny. I can pronounce that. I know what Brandon's thinking. The Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, Gergesites, and the Jebusites. And, and Abram's not going to inherit this in his day. In fact, the only time Israel even came close to inheriting a good portion of this promise was when David and Solomon were kings. But, but uh, they're back in the land today, and, and they're, you know, they don't have even a third of the land that God promised to Abraham. So we know that this is a future promise. It's a promise given unconditionally to Abraham's physical descendants, to the Israelites, and and. Uh, there's a spiritual application for us because for his spiritual descendants, we aren't given the land of uh, Jerusalem. We're given the land of the new Jerusalem. We're going to be heavenly saints. Now, now, if you don't believe this is a everlasting promise, go with me over to Psalm chapter 105. And I just, I really, I could read you just one verse there. What's, what's, look at verse 8. What does it say in Psalm 105? Middle of your, very center of your Bible. What's it say? He remembers his covenant for how long? Forever. Forever. God's a forever guy. We live in the temporal 
uh, space of time. God's a forever God. And he remembers his covenants are forever. He, the, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham. That's the one we're looking at right now. And his oath to Isaac. And it was passed down to Jacob. To Israel. The nation of Israel. Now this is not spiritual Israel here. As a, how long of a covenant? An everlasting covenant. That's the very covenant that we're looking at right here today. That he renewed with Abraham after he had given him these signs. Saying to you, I will give you. Now this is the land of Canaan. Land is, is that physical or is that spiritual? That's physical. How long is that covenant? It's an everlasting covenant. And as, a, as an allotment for your inheritance. And so, so much for replacement theology. I, I, I don't know how you can read your Bible and come up with this thing of replacement theology. God has never replaced the nation of Israel. He has never broken his promises to the nation of Israel. He's punished the nation of Israel, and he's kicked them out of that land. And they, at times it doesn't seem like they were, that it, at times it seemed like maybe God had broken his promise. But, hey, they're back in the land today. I believe they're going to get kicked out one more time by the Antichrist. But then in, e- in the millennium and in eternity, they're going to occupy that land, that portion of land. Abraham's going to be there. David's going to be there. And they're going to occupy that land forever. And if God's lying about that or somehow he's twisted that into a spiritual thing, man, you, what do you do with our faith? I mean, if he has an everlasting covenant for literal Israel and spiritual Israel, then both of them have to be fulfilled or God's a liar. And God's not a liar. It's impossible for him to lie. So we don't have to worry about that at all. All right, so that brings us to the end of uh, Abraham's encounter with God. Uh, Next week, uh, even though he got that great sign, he's going to chunk it and go back to his old ways, just like a lot of us do. He's going to be back, sort of in the darkness again. You know, when I got saved 30 years ago out in the desert of New Mexico, I was in great darkness, great darkness. Now, it was, don't get me wrong, it was a beautiful day, blue skies, the sun was shining, but there was a great darkness that overcame my soul out there before I got saved. In fact, I, I spent, I, I drove a car from New Orleans to, to New Mexico, and that whole time I, I could just, I just realized how black and dark my soul had become. But God showed up with his light. And his light shined on that smoking oven, that smoking furnace, the cross, and I came to that light, and I was saved. You know, that's the way we all get saved. Isaiah says it like this, those who have walked in the land of darkness have seen a great light. That's how you get saved. Friend, God, the great light, God shines the light, and he draws you to the light. And I'll tell you what, what you see when you're drawn to that light is that brazen altar. You see that cross. 
And if we come to that cross and we gaze upon that cross like we looked at last week, the Houston, the serpent on the pole, our sins on that cross, and we, in that light that God has shown on that cross, we look at that and we're saved forever. But even after 30 years, there are times as a born-again Christian that I really go through some dark, dark times in my life. You lose somebody special to you, you know, it gets kind of dark. But it can get even darker than that. I mean, I actually believe at times God withdraws himself in a way that I'm overcome by this great darkness. I know I'm sealed with the Spirit. I know God will never leave me or forsake me, but he, he withdraws in such a way that I don't recognize his presence there. And it's totally dark in my soul. And when that happens, I wonder why. You know, God, why? Where's the joy? Where's the peace? Why this darkness in my soul? Why these dark dreams where, where I go to a place where there's no God, there's no law, that's, it's, it's like hell. Why, God? Why do you put me through experiences like that? And I believe the answer is in this text. God is reminding me of how great the darkness is indeed without him. That I I can't do anything to fix my sin problems. I can't do anything to shed light on my soul. It's all up to him. Without that burning torch... Without that smoking oven of the cross. Hey, I'm doomed. And God reminds me of that from time to time. And so when I come out of one of those dark times. Into that great light. I got to tell you, I'm elated. Man, it's like I've been saved all over again. And I know I've saved. I'm once saved, always saved person. I know I haven't lost my salvation. God's just given me an experience where I realize what it would be like without him in George's soul. And when I come out of those times, I can't tell you what I do. I praise God. I thank God for the blood of Jesus Christ that has delivered me from darkness forever. We're very, very fortunate people to know Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the great light that you've shown in our souls. The light that exposes the cross, Lord, that shows us Jesus on that cross, that shows us our sin. Lord, and, and just how wretched we are without you. Father, we just thank you for, for your grace that, that you would you would be so gracious to us as to give us your only begotten son. Lord, we thank you for that, that smoking furnace, Lord, that cross. We thank you for that menorah, that light, that burning torch that you shine in our souls. And, Lord, we just thank you for the light of life, Jesus Christ himself. It's through him, Lord, that we're saved and sanctified and glorified. We just thank you for that. In his precious name I pray. Amen.